So it is customary for the opening lecture of the college to address some aspect of Catholic liberal education in order to remind ourselves of what we are about, what it is we do, and why we do it. The college claims to offer an education under the light of faith, an education that is ordered toward sacred theology as queen of the sciences. Theology is queen because all of the other disciplines, mathematics, natural science, philosophy, prepare the way for it and minister to it as handmaidens. The science of theology itself is perhaps best characterized by the formula of St. Anselm, faith-seeking understanding, fides querens intellectum. Catholic liberal education, then, presupposes that faith seeks understanding, that the science of theology is the perfection of faith's pursuit of understanding, and that this pursuit requires the use of reason and the sciences that perfect reason. Now, in considering theology as a science, we look especially to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, our patron, because in a marvelous way, he showed how theology could assume the nature and form of a science by employing philosophy as a handmaiden to theology. Now, the aim of my lecture is to explain St. Thomas's account of why and how faith seeks understanding, focusing especially on the role of philosophy as a handmaiden to sacred theology. The lecture has three parts. In the first part, I will examine Aquinas' understanding of faith, especially his interpretation of St. Paul's account of faith in Hebrews 11.1, in order to show why faith seeks understanding. The second part, we'll discuss three uses of philosophy within the science of sacred theology, showing how they each contribute to the pursuit of faith-seeking understanding. Finally, I will conclude with a discussion of the dangers to be avoided in attempting to understand what we believe, focusing especially on steering clear of the two opposite extremes of rationalism and fideism. In order to understand why faith seeks understanding, we must begin by getting clear about the nature of faith. St. Thomas's own account of faith begins with St. Paul's description of faith as, quote, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that appear not. That's Hebrews 11.1. Aquinas takes St. Paul's formulation as a complete definition of faith although he concedes that its meaning is obscure and the words are not arranged in the form of a definition. After Thomas unpacks the meaning of the Pauline formula, he offers his own definition of faith. Quote, a habit of mind whereby eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect assent to what is not apparent. End quote. There is a lot packed into this definition, so let us back up and see how Thomas arrives at this notion of faith from the words of St. Paul. We begin by looking at the first part of Paul's definition. What does he mean when he says faith is the substance of things hoped for? This is a strange, almost paradoxical formulation, insofar as the word substance suggests that the things hoped for are already possessed or attained. But the use of the word hope suggests something unattained. As Paul himself points out, quote, 
Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? That's Romans 8.24. St. Thomas explains that faith is, quote, the substance of things hoped for because faith is the real beginning of eternal life in us. Because it, quote, makes the realities we hope for exist within us in an inchoate manner. He compares faith to a seed. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the way that the tree exists in the seed or the animal in the embryo. Indeed, Jesus' parable of the sower likens belief in the word of God to a seed which, when sown in fertile soil, will grow into a fruitful tree. The point here is that the gift of faith is not something static, but a, but a dynamic principle meant to be developed. Aquinas notes that, quote, we are accustomed to name the first beginning of anything, the substance, and especially when the whole subsequent thing is contained virtually in the first beginning. End quote. Just as the definitions and common notions virtually contain the whole of Euclid's elements, so the articles of faith virtually contain the vision of God we hope to attain. The comparison of faith to the first principles of a science is not simply an analogy. Faith is the substance of things hoped for because by means of faith, we possess the principles of a science, the science possessed by God and the blessed. Here is how he puts it in his commentary on Hebrews. We believe that the blessed will see and enjoy God. Therefore, if we will to arrive at that state, it is necessary that we believe the principles of that science. And these principles are the articles of faith, which contain a summary of the whole of this science. In these words, the substance of things hoped for, is shown the ordination of the act of faith to its end. Because faith is ordered to things to be hoped for as a certain beginning in which the whole is, as it were, contained essentially as conclusions in principles." End quote. So, calling faith the substance of things hoped for shows that faith is the beginning of eternal life by making God really present in the believer, giving us the principles of a science that finds its ultimate completion in the beatific vision. Now, why is it important for our purposes to note that faith is a beginning or a seed of eternal life? The point is that faith is only a beginning, a starting point, something meant to be developed over time, just as one develops a science from first principles. Indeed, St. Thomas describes faith as the beginning of a divine teaching or instruction that takes place gradually over time. Quote, Man does not partake of this discipline all at once, but in successive stages according to the mode of our nature. End quote. God gives us the gift of faith so that even now, in the present life, we, begin, we can begin to be instructed in a sacred doctrine, a sacred science. Here is how St. Thomas puts it in his commentary on Boethius' De Trinitate. Quote, there arises here and now in us a certain sharing in and a likeness to the divine knowledge, to the extent that through the faith implanted in us, 
we firmly grasp the primary truth, truth itself for its own sake. And as God, by the very fact that he knows himself, knows all other things as well in his way, namely by simple intuition, not discursively, so may we, from the things we accept by faith in our firm grasping of the primary truth, come to know other things in our own way, namely by drawing conclusions from principles. Thus the truths we hold on faith are, as it were, our principles in this science, and the others become, as it were, conclusions. That's all talking about the divine science, the science of sacred doctrine. So faith is a necessary beginning because even though man's ultimate happiness consists in the beatific vision, he attains to this vision only according to the mode of his nature in successive stages. The believer begins with faith, but then proceeds toward understanding, toward the science of sacred theology as the most perfect human wisdom, and ultimately arrives at the full perfection of the science, the beatific vision. So St. Paul's description of faith as the substance of things hoped for suggests that faith is the first beginning of a science which develops in successive stages and culminates ultimately in the vision of God. So that's the first part of Paul's definition. Let us turn to the second part, the description of faith as, quote, the evidence of things that appear not. Like the first part of Paul's definition, this phrase seems strange and paradoxical, since evidence usually refers to something that leads the mind to firmly adhere to its object by making the object itself clear, by making it apparent. As St. Thomas explains, the word evidence is to be taken to refer to what results from evidence, namely the firm adherence of the intellect. So the evidence of things that appear not here means the firm adhesion of the intellect to the non-apparent truth of faith. Indeed, as St. Thomas himself points out, the Greek text of Hebrews is sometimes translated as the conviction of things that are not seen. The use of the word evidence then is meant to convey that when the intellect assents to the object of faith, it does so with the conviction that belongs to the understanding of self-evident first principles or to the conclusions of a scientific demonstration, even though the object remains obscure or hidden, seen through a glass darkly. In science and understanding, the object of the intellect compels assent. But, quote, the intellect of the believer is determined to one object not by reason, but by the will, end quote. Now this is true of any act of belief, even natural belief. When I am convinced of the truth of something my parents tell me, my intellect assents to the truth because it is moved by the will, because it seems good to believe my parents. But in the case of supernatural faith, the will moves the intellect to assent by God's grace. Quote, the act of believing is an act of the intellect assenting to the divine truth at the command of the will moved by the grace of God. End quote. Faith then is something perfect in one sense and imperfect in another. 
On the one hand, it shares something in common with science and understanding because of its certitude. Because in the act of faith, the intellect firmly assents to the object of faith. In this respect, it differs from opinion, which assents to one of two contraries, but with fear that the other may be true. And it also differs from doubt, which wavers between two contraries. On the other hand, it shares something in common with opinion because it is about matters that are not seen with clarity. In this, it differs from science and understanding. Now, these two apparently disparate acts of faith belong to it because in the act of faith, the intellect is moved to assent, not because the object itself is seen with clarity, but because it is moved to assent by the will. These two, these two aspects of faith, its lack of clarity and firmness of assent, is captured by St. Augustine's description of the act of faith as, quote, to think, cogitare, with assent. St. Thomas explains that in Augustine's definition of faith, to think, the cogitare, refers to, quote, that consideration of the intellect which is accompanied by some kind of inquiry and which precedes the intellect's arrival at the stage of perfection that comes with the certitude of sight, end quote. He also says that, quote, thinking, properly speaking, is the motion of the mind while yet deliberating and not yet perfected by the full sight of truth, end quote. And again, sorry, I'm bombarding you with quotations. Again, he says, quote, because the intellect does not in this way have its action terminated at one thing, so that it is brought to its proper term, which is the sight of some intelligible object, it follows that its movement is not yet brought to rest. Rather, it still thinks and inquires about the things which it believes, even though it assents to them most firmly." End quote. So even though faith imparts certain knowledge, it remains fundamentally imperfect. In fact, in one place, St. Thomas says it's most imperfect because the mind fails to reach its proper term but remains restless and inquisitive. Because faith is something most imperfect since it has yet to reach its proper term, this explains why faith seeks understanding. The restlessness of faith its inquiring and deliberative element arouses the desire to understand. As St. Thomas says, quote, the knowledge of faith does not set the desire at rest, but inflames it, because everyone desires to see what he believes. So the very imperfection of faith, its restlessness, is the impetus of the science of sacred theology, the desire of faith to seek understanding. Now, it's important to note that the restlessness of faith is not something temporary, something experienced only at the beginning, the beginning of faith's pursuit of understanding, but an enduring feature of our knowledge of God here below. It is not just the original impetus of faith-seeking understanding, but an ongoing stimulus to inquiry, a perpetual cause of wonder. But Thomas notes that there are two kinds of wonder. You can have wonder because you don't know the cause of something, but you can also have wonder because you do know the cause, but the cause exceeds your comprehension. It's that latter kind of wonder Thomas describes as 
wonder in the unqualified sense. There is no risk, in other words, that one will exhaust the mysteries of the faith, that the well will run dry. Nor is it the case that as faith strengthens, as the intellect ascends to the truth of faith with greater firmness, that the mind will be less inquisitive, or that it will cease to ponder and reflect. St. Thomas says that in faith there is a kind of equilibrium or balance between the firmness of assent in the act of faith and its deliberative or inquisitive element. So as faith strengthens, as as one assents more firmly, the degree to which one ponders and reflects will also grow. Think of Mary's response to the things revealed about her son, especially in Luke's Gospel. Quote, Mary kept, treasured, all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's actually several passages that are similar to that. So Mary's got the duality there. She's keeping, holding firmly, treasuring these things, these truths. But at the same time, she ponders them. Now let me mention one more aspect of faith that is pertinent to faith's pursuit of understanding. So far, we have been talking about faith as the first beginning of supernatural life in us, as something that precedes charity in the order of generation. Faith precedes charity because the will cannot tend to God with a perfect love, the love of friendship, unless the intellect apprehends God as the object of heavenly beatitude. Faith, however, is perfected by charity. It is only living faith faith informed by charity that is a supernatural virtue. Once perfected by charity, there is an added motive for faith to pursue understanding because the object of faith is loved with a more perfect love, the love of friendship. One seeks to know the beloved even more, to understand as much as possible the things revealed about God and the mysteries of faith. When a man's will has been perfected by charity, according to St. Thomas, quote, he loves the truth he believes and carefully thinks about it and takes to heart whatever reasons he can find for it, end quote. Faith-seeking understanding in this way is meritorious. Indeed, it has greater merit than those works of the active life. Just as Mary's listening at the feet of our Lord is a more perfect act of charity, than Martha serving the Lord at table. Remember, Martha goes to our Lord and complains because Mary's not helping him. He says, Martha, you're anxious about many things, but one thing is needful. So it is important to stress that when faith is informed by charity, it aims not simply at perfecting the understanding, but at fellowship, at union with God. St. Thomas contrasts the contemplation of the saints, which is motivated by a love of the object known, namely God himself, with the knowledge of the pagan philosophers, whose desire to understand was motivated by a love of self, by a love of knowledge as a perfection of the knower. This latter sort of knowledge, the knowledge of God pursued without charity, is finally vain glory and does not profit a man to eternal life. As St. Paul says, quote, knowledge 
puffs up. Charity builds up. That's 1 Corinthians 8.1. Or as he says later, quote, If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. It's 1 Corinthians 13.2. Living faith, then, desires understanding because it is inflamed by love and makes use of everything in his power to achieve union with the Beloved. This is a quote from Thomas. Since the perfection of man consists in union with God, man ought to strive after the divine truth from everything in his power, as much as is possible, so that the intellect is free for contemplation and reason for the investigation of divine things. As the psalmist says, it is good for me to adhere to my God. End quote. Since faith informed by charity seeks to understand in order to be united to God, we can thus see the importance of prayer in the life of the theologian. Indeed, contemplation should begin and end with prayer. One ought to begin one's study with a prayer petition asking the Lord for wisdom. And when one attains understanding, the mind should be elevated to God in a song of praise delighting in the object known, God himself. In summary, we have seen that faith is the beginning of the supernatural life in us, the first stage of divine teaching, because it supplies the articles of faith, which are the first principles of the science. In this life, these principles are meant to be developed into a sacred science, which is the highest human wisdom. And in the life to come, it will be replaced by the immediate vision of God. We have also examined the act of faith, showing that it does not terminate in its object, but is restless and inquisitive. Finally, we have shown that when faith is informed by charity, it it seeks understanding because the lover desires to know the beloved. So that's the end of that first part. Let us now turn to the use of philosophy within sacred doctrine. In his commentary on Boethius' De Trinitate, St. Thomas outlines three uses of philosophy in the science of sacred doctrine. The first, to demonstrate the preambles to the faith. The second, to throw light on the contents of the faith by means of certain similitudes or analogies. And the third, to refute assertions contrary to the faith, either by showing them to be false or at least lacking in necessity. Let us begin with the first use of philosophy, demonstrating the preambles to the faith. Well, first, some of you might be wondering, maybe half of you, what does Thomas mean by a preamble to the faith? To answer that question, we need to point out that there is a twofold order of truths about God that is revealed to us through faith. There are some truths that altogether surpass the power of reason. For example, the Trinity, and the Incarnation. These are the articles of faith, the mysteries of faith. There are other truths about God and creatures that faith reveals, but these truths are knowable, at least in principle, by philosophy or the natural light of reason. For example, that God exists, that he is incorporeal, that he is perfect, 
that he is infinite, that he is eternal, that he is one. St. Thomas calls these latter truths preambles to the faith. They are called preambles because they are presupposed, at least implicitly, in the articles of faith. Belief in the Trinity, for instance, presupposes that God exists and that he is one in nature or substance. If the preambles can be known by the natural light of reason, one might wonder why these things are revealed in Scripture. The answer is that our, salva our salvation depends upon knowing these truths, and if reason is left to itself to discover them, few men will attain them, and only after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. But if faith reveals the truth contained by the preambles, why does the theologian want to demonstrate them? Now, one might be tempted to answer this question by asserting that demonstrating the preamble serves an apologetic function, that it removes impediments to the faith so that the mind more readily assents to the articles of faith. By showing that there are valid arguments for the existence of God and other such things, one provides a basis for saying that it is reasonable to accept the articles of faith, the mysteria fidei. Now, there's no doubt that demonstrating the preambles to the faith can serve an apologetic function. But St. Thomas makes clear that the student of sacred doctrine does not use philosophy to prepare the mind to receive faith nor is he trying to shore up a weak faith by attempting to prove some of the things that he believes. To do so would diminish the merit of faith. The student of sacred doctrine presupposes faith and seeks understanding. Well, what role then do the demonstrations of the preambula play within the science of sacred doctrine? How do they function within theology? Here is how. The disciple begins by believing the twofold truth about God, both the preambles and the mysteries of faith, but seeks to understand this twofold truth as much as possible in this life. But according to St. Thomas, it is through demonstrating the preambles that one comes to know them perfectly. If we return for a moment to the distinction between the certitude of faith and the certitude of science, we recall that the scientific demonstration yields certitude about the things known because it allows the mind to attain its proper term, the vision of some intelligible object. The desire to understand what we believe about God applies both to the preambles and the mysteries of faith, and it is by philosophic demonstration of the preambles that the mind attains understanding. This is precisely what the student of sacred doctrine seeks. By demonstrating the preambles, the mind is brought to a perfect knowledge. Now, we should perhaps qualify that statement. When St. Thomas says that we can know these things perfectly by the demonstrations, he means that the object is attained perfectly according to our natural mode of knowing. Even these truths, however, will be seen in a higher way and more perfectly in the beatific vision where we will see God non-discursively by the light of glory.
Let me give one example to illustrate the point. Aquinas proves in the Prima Pars, question three, article four, that God's essence and existence are the same and that this is proper to God alone. It is on the basis of this argument that St. Thomas frequently identifies God as ipsum esse subsistence, subsistent being itself. The theologian, however, does not demonstrate that God's essence is identical to his existence in order to learn that God is subsistent being. Since this is already known by faith through the revelation to Moses in the burning bush where we learn that I am who am is the proper name of God, Exodus 3.14. But the demonstration of God's existence and the arguments demonstrating his simplicity enable us to understand why this name is proper to God. Thus, the demonstration of the preambles within the science of sacred doctrine function principally as a mean to, means to understand the preambles, not to establish that the preambles are true, even though this too is objectively included in the, the conclusion of the demonstration. So, so far we have seen that the demonstration of the preambles helps the mind attain a more perfect understanding. This is important and true, but it is only a partial or incomplete understanding of the place of the demonstration of the preambles within sacred doctrine. We have considered the preambles as a body of truth separate from the articles of faith, those truths about God that transcend the powers of reason. We have not considered the preambles precisely as preambles, as truths presupposed and contained, at least implicitly, in the mysteries of faith. It is precisely here, thinking of the preambles as preambles, that we can more clearly see the fundamental need for the philosophic demonstration of the preambles within sacred doctrine. This is because God is the subject of the science of sacred doctrine. But since his essence is unknown to us in this life, we must rely upon knowledge of his effects to somehow stand in place of a definition. This is where the demonstration of the preambles fits in, beginning with the demonstration of God's existence. Thus, the five ways are not meant to establish that God exists, as if the theologian were to begin his science without knowing the existence of his subject. Rather, they are meant to contribute to an understanding of what God is. This is because we cannot know that God exists unless we know, as St. Thomas says, in some confused way what he is. Each of the five ways begins with a different effect and arrives at a distinct notion of God. First mover, first efficient cause, per se necessary being, first being, and intelligent governor. These different ways of understanding God are five definitions or quasi-definitions that are used as middle terms throughout the Summa Theologiae. The search for a definition of God, or at least something that can take the place of a definition of God within the science of sacred doctrine, does not end with the five ways. From the five ways, Aquinas goes on to demonstrate additional attributes, and these attributes in turn functions middle terms further into the Summa. For example, that God is subsistent being. 
But not only do the individual attributes of God function as middle terms, Aquinas suggests that all of the attributes that we demonstrate about God from his effects, when taken cumulatively, give us fuller and more complete knowledge of God. Quote, although by the revelation of grace in this life, we cannot know of God what he is, and are thus united to him as to one unknown, still we know him more fully according as many and more excellent of his effects are demonstrated to us, end quote. Now, St. Thomas, following Dionysius, identifies three ways in which we can advance in knowledge of God in this life. The way of causality, the way of transcendence, and the way of negation. Of these three, the way of negation is crucial because, as St. Thomas says, quote, in divine science, knowledge of what God is not takes the place of knowledge of what he is. For just as one thing is distinguished from others by what it is, so also by the knowledge of what it is not. End quote. It is not surprising then that negative theology, or what he also calls the way of remotion, features prominently in the demonstration of the preambles in questions 3 to 11 of the Prima Pars. Indeed, Aquinas repeatedly describes this early part of the Summa Theologiae as a consideration of how God is not. Now, it might seem strange that the way of negation features so prominently an attempt to formulate a notion of God that can stand in place of a definition because it focuses on what he is not. But Aquinas explains that the cumulative effect of knowing more and more negations about God is similar to the process of coming to a definition by adding differences to a genus. Now let me explain. When we define something, we begin by placing it in a genus and then add a series of differences that distinguish it from other things in that genus. But God is not in a genus. Nor can we express his distinctions from other things by affirmative differences because we don't know the essence of God. Instead, we begin with a confused knowledge of God as the cause of creatures. For example, as first mover. And then add negative differences that serve to distinguish him from other things. For example, that he's unmoved, that he's immaterial, now, just as a series of affirmative differences restrict one another, bringing us closer to a complete definition, so in the case of God, one negative difference is restricted by another. And in this way, we can arrive at a proper consideration of God. So we see then that the demonstration of the preambles, especially the negative attributes of God, is meant to be taken cumulatively as a way of acquiring a definition, or at least a more distinct and proper notion of the divine essence that can take the place of a definition. And since God is the subject of the articles of faith, the demonstration of the preambles helps us to better understand the principles of the science of theology. So let us now turn to the second use of philosophy within sacred theology.
And that's the use of certain similitudes, similitudines, to shed light on the contents of faith. Whereas the first use of philosophy pertains only to those things knowable by natural reason, this second use applies to those things that can be known only by the light of faith. This might seem strange. Why is the, the use of philosophy necessary or even possible in the case of the mysteries of faith? We should here recall something we noted earlier, that man does not partake of this discipline all at once, but in successive stages according to the mode of his nature. The use of similitudes is necessary because even when man is enlightened by faith, the human intellect in this life must still follow its own mode of knowing by proceeding from sensible things. Here's how Aquinas puts it, quote, Accordingly, in the present life, it is absolutely impossible to know the essence of immaterial substances, not only by natural knowledge, but also by revelation. For as Dionysius says, the light of divine revelation comes to us adapted to our condition. Thus, even though revelation elevates us to know something of which we should be otherwise ignorant, it does not elevate us to know in any other way than through sensible things. For St. Thomas, the light of faith does not give us some kind of intuitive knowledge of God, such that we can know divine truths directly rather than through the medium of sensible things. Now in the beatific vision, the intellect is united directly to the very essence of God. But in this life, knowledge of God is always mediated by some created likeness or similitude. Now Thomas draws this teaching not only from Dionysius, but also from St. Augustine and ultimately St. Paul. When the apostle says, quote, for now we see through a glass and in an enigma, then we shall see face to face, that's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. St. Thomas, following Augustine, interprets the terms glass and enigma as referring to certain similitudes adapted to our understanding of God in this life. Now, there are two ways in which sacred theology employs certain similitudes taken from philosophy in order, to under, in order to manifest a mystery of faith. So I'm going to spend some time on the, the first kind of similitude, which is probably the more fundamental of the two. First, it uses certain words or concepts that are drawn from our natural knowledge of creatures that can be truly and properly said of God, but only apply to him analogously. Aquinas is well known for teaching that there are certain names of God that can be truly and properly predicated of him, although these names are said of God and creatures only by analogy. Now this is true not only of certain names that pertain to the divine essence, for example, the, the name being or the word being, good, wise, those apply to the divine essence, but also of certain names that pertain to the divine persons of the Trinity. For example, the name person, or relation, or father, son, spirit, word, love. So consider the word good. The word good does not mean the very same thing when said of God and creatures. While goodness in a man is a quality distinct from his essence, 
something that can come and go. In God, it is identical to his very essence. That's because of the divine simplicity. God is essentially good. Indeed, this is why the perfection signified by the word good is more truly said of God than it is of creatures. Hence, Jesus says in the Gospels that, quote, no one is good but God alone. Christ does not mean that we cannot use the word when speaking of creatures, but rather that the word good is only used analogously and is more truly said of God than creatures. Now, the same thing is true of the personal names of God. I can use the word Father to name the first person of the Trinity, but this word does not mean the very same thing when applied to human fathers. This is evident when we consider the term of generation. In human, gener in human generation, the Father communicates to the Son the same specific form. But when God the Father generates the Son, he communicates the same numerical form, and the two are distinct only according to relation. So God the Father and God the Son are not two separate substances, right? They're distinct by, according to relation. So the words are not said univocally of God and creatures. Moreover, since the nature is more perfectly communicated, or since the nature generated is more perfectly communicated in divine generation, the perfection signified by the word father is more truly and properly said of God, the father, than it is of human fathers. And this is why Jesus says, quote, Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 23.8. Again, he does not mean to suggest that we should no longer use the word father in, re in referring to our human fathers. The point is to recognize that the perfection signified by the word father belongs first to God and to creatures only secondarily. This is confirmed by the words of the apostle, quote, I bend my knee to the Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, from whom all paternity in heaven and on earth is named. That's Ephesians 3.14. But if the names we use to express the divine perfections are divinely revealed to us, and if these names apply to God more truly and properly than to creatures, you might wonder... Why describe the names or concepts we apply to God merely as similitudes? To answer this question, Aquinas makes a distinction between the thing signified by the name, the res significata, freshman, you can start using your Latin already, see, and the mode of signifying, the modus significandi. On the one hand, the thing signified by the name, the underlying reality, the particular perfection we are naming, is found in God in a more excellent way. Hence, Aquinas will say that, quote, as, regard, as regards what is signified by these names, they belong properly to God and more properly than they belong to creatures and are applied to him primarily, end quote. On the other hand, since our knowledge of God is expressed in human language, it uses names and concepts that are drawn from and colored by our knowledge of creatures. 
since our concepts are first fashioned and applied to sensible things, they are in some sense inadequate or unsuited to the task of representing the divine perfections. I mean, it's a little bit like uh, trying to open a beer bottle with a Bic lighter. Or, or, right. <laughs> or trying to peel an orange with chopsticks. It's, it's just not suited to the job. But you might, might, ha might have to make do with what you have. So you might need to use the Bic lighter or the chopsticks to peel the orange. Well, your fingers might be better for the orange. But... Thus, St. Thomas will say that as regards their mode of signification, they are not properly said of God because they have a mode of signifying that belongs to creatures. Here, here is the point. Since the perfections found in creatures are only likenesses or similitudes of the divine perfection from which they flow, the words and ideas formed from our knowledge of creatures are only similitudes of the divine perfection. The only word adequate to the task of representing God is the divine word. With regard to the mode of signifying, St. Thomas stresses that the names of perfections, when applied to creatures, circumscribe and comprehend the things signified. Whereas when these same names are applied to God, the thing signified remains uncomprehended, exceeding the signification of the name. So in, in a very real sense, these names that are revealed to us and we attempt to understand there's in a way more in the name than we understand because the name points to the thing signified, that reality, even though our concept and grasp on what the name signifies is in a creaturely mode, right? Indeed, Aquinas indicates that there is an infinite distance between the likeness found in creatures and that found in God. And this is in keeping with the teaching of the Fourth Lateran Council, Council, which teaches that, quote, between creator and creature, there can never be found a likeness ever so great without finding in that likeness a still greater unlikeness, end quote. Now, beside the use of, the use of certain concepts that are said of God analogously, when Aquinas speaks of certain similitudes used to shed light on things of faith, he also has in mind certain analogies or images drawn from the philosophical disciplines that can be used to help the mind grasp the mysteries of faith. So here I'm shifting to the second sort of similitude that's used in sacred theology. And let me just give one example that pertains to Trinitarian theology. You're going to study it this year, seniors. St. Thomas, following St. Augustine, uses the procession of the interior word in the human mind, which we usually call the formation of a mental concept. He uses that, that procession as an image or likeness of the Father's generation of the Son. Notice that we call the expression of the interior word in our own minds a conception, tacitly recognizing that it bears a likeness to generation. In fact, Thomas will say that 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 uh, expression of the word in the human mind is kind of implanted by God as a kind of an image or similitude of uh, the, the processions in the Trinity. 
The interior word, therefore, is a useful image or similitude to help us represent divine generation. But this sort of similitude differs from the analogous names we spoke of previously. With analogous names, the same words are said truly and properly of both God and creatures. But in this case, the procession of the interior word and the human soul is not properly said to be a generation because the word that proceeds from our intellect, that concept we form in our minds, is not the same nature as the source from which it proceeds. It doesn't produce an intellect. Still, even though the procession of the word in the human mind is only a generation, metaphorically speaking, it is the closest we can get to representing divine generation and plays a crucial role in Thomas's account of the procession of the sun. Finding the right similitude is crucial because the more suitable the image, the more likely one will avoid misunderstanding the sacred mystery. Indeed, St. Thomas begins his treatment of the Trinity by showing that the procession of the interior word is key to understanding is the key to understanding what the Catholic Church teaches about the generation of the Son and avoiding the two extremes of the Arian heresy and the error of Sibelius. You'll learn about that senior year. Nonetheless, despite its usefulness, we must proceed cautiously when using this second sort of similitude. Some of Aquinas' predecessors mistook these sorts of similitudes as what they called necessary arguments or necessary reasons for the sacred mysteries. It would be a mistake to think, for example, that the expression of the interior word in the human soul demonstrates the necessity of the son's procession from the father. St. Thomas says that these similitudes provide probable or likely arguments, useful as a contemplative exercise for the consolation of the faithful, but warns against using them to persuade adversaries to the faith. Indeed, the faithful should bear in mind that these arguments should not be taken as arguments moving toward faith, arguments that establish or prove the faith, or shore up a weak faith, but arguments that presuppose faith and aim to better understand or contemplate what we believe. So that's the second use of philosophy within sacred theology. Now we turn to the third use of philosophy, the refutation of errors contrary to the faith. Now here again, as with the preambles, one might be tempted to think that the refutation of error is an apologetic or missionary function of theology, something secondary or accidental to the project of faith-seeking understanding. On this view, theology is concerned principally with understanding the faith and the refutation of error being a further application aimed at persuading the unbeliever or at least paving the way to faith by removing impediments. If this is what Aquinas has in mind, it is hard to see how the use of philosophy is here functioning within the science of sacred doctrine, how it is an essential and integral part of the science of theology. Well, how then is the refutation of error related essentially to the project of faith-seeking understanding? 
The most obvious reason is because avoiding error is a correlative of seeing the truth. Thus, St. Thomas connects the desire for truth with the desire to refute error. Quote, Just as all men by nature desire to know the truth, so they also have a natural desire to avoid error and to refute it when they have the ability. End quote. The refutation of error is first and foremost seeing with one's mind that something is an error. It's one thing to suspect something is wrong. It's another thing to see that it is wrong. Only the man whose knowledge has been perfected can recognize and refute error. Now, in the opening chapter of his work, the Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas says that, quote, just as it belongs to the wise man to meditate especially on the truth belonging to first principles and to teach it to others, so it belongs to him to refute the opposing falsehood. End quote. Since the science of sacred doctrine is the most perfect human wisdom, it belongs to that science to refute error, especially those errors opposed to the mysteries of faith. Granted, then, that sacred doctrine aims to both understand the truth and refute the opposing errors, why is philosophy needed for this task? To answer this question, we need to make a distinction between two kinds of adversaries, heretics and non-believers. One can dispute against heretics by appealing to the authority of sacred scripture, arguing from one article of faith against those denying another article. Against the non-believers, however, the only recourse is to appeal to natural reason. One obviously cannot prove the articles of faith, since by definition they exceed reason. But one can show that the arguments against the faith lack demonstrative force. To answer these arguments, one must resolve two first principles, showing that the adversary incorrectly draws his conclusions from those principles. Quote, Whatever arguments are brought forward against the doctrines of faith are conclusions indirectly derived from the first and self-evident principles embedded in nature. Such conclusions do not have the force of demonstration. They are arguments that are either probable or sophistical, and so there exists the possibility to answer them. Answering them means showing that, that they don't have the demonstrative force they uh, claim to have. So it is clear then that sacred theology makes use of philosophy because the refutation of error requires a resolution to first principles. Note, however, that even though Aquinas says that in disputing with heretics, sacred theology can appeal to the authority of scripture, this does not mean that philosophy is unnecessary or useless in responding to heresy. In an attempt to understand the source of the heretic's error, Aquinas frequently uses philosophical principles and distinctions. The appeal to sacred scripture can be used to show that the heretic denies some part of revealed truth. But philosophy frequently proves useful when it comes to unmasking the conceptual error behind the heresy. So in practice, Philosophy is employed not only when responding to philosophic objections to the faith, but also when responding to the heretic. 
we see then that the need to refute error is essential to theological wisdom. Now, before concluding this section of my paper and moving on to the last part, which is shorter, by the way, um, so before turning to the last section, let me discuss one more reason why the refutation of error is important, one that concerns St. Thomas's method rather than the content of his teaching. It is this. Responding to error plays an integral role in the dialectical process of working towards an understanding of the faith. Unlike, say, geometry, whose principles are evident and which develops in more or less linear fashion, the science of theology makes its way dialectically by responding to error, by slowly refining the language it uses to speak about the mysteries of faith and the similitudes it uses to help manifest those mysteries. This is true both historically and for the individual mind approaching an understanding of faith. Historically speaking, error and heresy provide the necessary stimulus to theological inquiry. Aquinas notes that the need to respond to heresy compelled the fathers of the church to inquire into the mysteries of faith. By the way, this is not only in St. Thomas. You can find this sort of same sort of claim in Augustine. It perhaps is most famous uh, in uh, Cardinal John Henry Newman's development of Christian doctrine, which you seniors will read second semester. One of Newman's big points is no doctrine is defined until it's violated. Right? So it's the violation of the doctrine, the error in a way that compels the fathers and doctors to formulate the doctrine. Thomas also points out various ways in which heresy forced the fathers to refine their articulation of the faith. It forced them to become more circumspect in their speech, especially regarding the choice of terms, since, as St. Jerome notes, the careless use of terms leads to heresy. It compelled them to adopt terms not used in Scripture, in order, in order to articulate the mysteries of faith. For example, the use of the word person in Trinitarian theology. It's not a scriptural term. And it pushed them to develop appropriate analogies for the mysteries of faith, such as the Trinity and the Incarnation. Now, beside the historical development of doctrine, seeing truth in relation to error is also important for the individual mind trying to grasp the mysteries of faith. Thomas points out that error tends to come in pairs because those who go astray in their attempt to avoid one error often fall into the opposite mistake. The Catholic faith, however, takes what he calls the middle way, arriving at the truth by steering clear of the errors that are found in both sides. In this respect, Error can play an important role in disclosing the truth, since, as Thomas notes, even what is false can bear witness to the truth. This is why, in his treatment of the mysteries of faith, Aquinas frequently begins by discussing the opposing errors before showing how the true faith lies somewhere in the middle. So finding an appropriate expression of the faith by means of certain similitudes 
works in tandem with the refutation of error. So in other words, the second and third use of philosophy in sacred doctrine, they, they work hand in hand, work in tandem. Both serve to clarify or manifest the mysteries of faith. Now with the use of error, or, or responding to error, we have something like the via negativa that we saw operative in the demonstration of the preambles. Just as the way of remotion helps us approach a definition of the divine essence, so the refutation of error helps us define the articles of faith. So now I turn to my last part. So if you're dozing, you can wake up now. I'm near the end. Um, this section is on avoiding the extremes of rationalism and fideism. So having discussed the three uses of philosophy within sacred doctrine, let me conclude by talking about the two principal dangers to be avoided in speculative theology, rationalism and fideism. First, rationalism. Having presented the three uses of philosophy in theology, St. Thomas warns his reader against trying to make reason the measure of faith rather than faith the measure of reason. As we have already seen, this can happen if one seeks knowledge of God in order to argue to faith or to shore up weak faith. Reason can, of course, help pave the way toward faith or remove obstacles to those with, the feet, with weak faith, but this is not the kind of search that follows from faith, nor is it meritorious, as we can see from doubting Thomas. Our Lord does condescend to his weakness and permit him to put his finger in the nail marks in his side, but he reproaches him for his lack of faith. Healthy theological speculation should always begin with the firm conviction that what faith teaches is true. Still, even if one begins with faith, a more subtle kind of rationalism can creep in. Success in demonstrating the preambles can entice the mind into thinking that one can go on to prove other things about God that exceed the capacity of reason. In this respect, Thomas faults some of his contemporaries for attempting to give what they called necessary arguments for the Trinity and other mysteries of the faith. The idea of giving necessary arguments for the mysteries of faith can be traced back to St. Anselm's monologian, and we also see something very similar to it in the Proslogion. That's, that's the book we read in the sophomore theology. Attempting to prove a mystery of faith is bad not only because it gives occasion to unbelievers to ridicule the faith, thinking that our faith is based on such flimsy arguments, but also, and more importantly, because attempting to demonstrate truths that surpass reason is a failure to recognize the dignity of the mysteries of faith. It's their loftiness and nobility which should make us hesitate to try to prove what exceeds the power of reason. So Aquinas stresses that we should pursue an understanding of the mysteries of faith with modesty and humility, not presuming to comprehend them. This is also why Aquinas makes such a sharp distinction between the preambles a word which he coined, and the mysteries of faith, to help recognize that there are some truths we should not attempt to prove. 
But even if we acknowledge that the mysteries surpass the powers of reason, that we can only approach them by means of various sacred veils or creaturely similitudes, we tend nonetheless to forget the limitations of human reason. Philosophy plays a vital role in seeing that our speech about God can name the divine perfections truly and properly. But we can easily forget that the concepts in our minds do not measure or comprehend the things that they name. We can name God Father and see that the name applies most properly to him. But our feeble minds fail to comprehend his paternity because our concept of Father is all too human. Indeed, even regarding the preambles, the things reason can demonstrate, our minds do not measure or comprehend the divine excellence, which is precisely why St. Thomas emphasizes negative theology. We are, he says, united to God as one unknown. Moreover, we should remind ourselves that we are able to reach many of the things that we demonstrate about God because they are first revealed by faith, which serves as a guide to reason's search, helping us to avoid the admixture of error found in the pagan philosophers. So I think we can see that St. Thomas, well, St. Thomas is sometimes accused of being a rationalist, of trying to overanalyze the faith, or subjecting the mysteries of faith to reason in a way that deprives them of their beauty and nobility. But this is a gross mischaracterization. Rationalism, however, is not the only error to avoid. Remember, error tends to come in pairs. On the other extreme is fideism, which, moved by reason's inability to comprehend the mysteries of faith, insists on reason's inability to prove the preambles or on its uselessness in helping unpack the articles of faith. Fideism is harder to define than rationalism because it comes in such varied forms. But the most extreme form of fideism holds that faith and reason are incompatible when it comes to truths about God. On this view, that's the extreme fideism, on this view, theology is reduced to biblical exposition or it focuses on, focuses on experiencing the beauty and poetry of the biblical narratives, on how the teachings of the gospel move our passions and emotions rather than our intellect. Now, there have been many Christians who have asserted in one form or another that faith and, faith and reason are incompatible. For example, Martin Luther and Soren Kierkegaard, although in Kierkegaard's case we should perhaps be a little cautious because he usually writes under a pseudonym, so maybe we shouldn't be too hasty to say that. And in St. Thomas's own day, there was a theory of double truth posited by a Christian named Seger of Brabant. He held that the truths of faith and the truths of reason simply contradict one another. This is Aquinas's response to that position. Quote, even though the natural light of the human mind is inadequate to make known what is revealed by faith, nevertheless, what is divinely taught to us by faith cannot be contrary to what we are endowed with by nature. One or the other would have to be false. And since we have both of them from God, 
he would be the cause of our error, which is impossible, end quote. The twofold truth about God, the preambles to faith and the mysteries of faith, stems from a twofold participation in the divine light, namely the natural light of reason and the light of faith. Now, there's a milder version of fideism uh, that scorns the application of philosophical concepts in articulating the doctrines of faith including the church's own dogmatic formulations. But St. Thomas clearly saw that if the language used to articulate the Trinity and the Incarnation and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist do not apply truly and properly to these mysteries, if they are reduced to mere metaphor, then the human mind is nothing firm or stable to grasp in the act of faith. What then becomes of the creed? Thomas's doctrine of the divine names, we've talked about that earlier, is in a marvelous way able to safeguard the supernatural realities revealed by human language, the things signified, but also explain that our human concepts and way of knowing, the mode of signifying, fall short, infinitely short, of grasping the mysteries of faith. Let me note one more relatively subtle form of fideism, one that has a traditionalist bent. It sees the importance of the concepts used to define the doctrines of the faith, but it limits theology to an accurate exposition of the church's authoritative pronouncements. It has a deep appreciation of the ancient rites and formulas, but it focuses on authority not on faith's pursuit of understanding. As St. Thomas points out, however, relying simply on authority may be sufficient to show that something is so, but it does not satisfy our desire to understand. Here's how he puts it. This is a nice passage. One sort of disputation is ordered toward removing a doubt about whether something is so. And in a theological disputation of that sort, one should use especially the authorities which are accepted by those with whom one disputes. Another sort of disputation is that of the teacher in the school, which aims not at removing error, but at instructing his listeners. Then it is necessary to rely on arguments investigating, investigating the root of the truth and making known how what is said is true. Otherwise, if the teacher determines a question merely by authorities, the listener will indeed be assured that something is so, but he will acquire no science or understanding and will go away empty. So for Aquinas, authority is simply not enough to satisfy our natural desire to understand what we believe. Fideism, of whatever stripe, fails to meet the intrinsic desire that is born of the restlessness of faith. In conclusion, men are perpetually attracted and deluded by two extremes. There is the charm of rationalism, engendered by reason's success in demonstrating the preambles. 
and the charm of fideism, which is engendered by an awareness of the feebleness of reason in confronting the mysteries of faith. Sacred theology is characterized by the refusal to succumb to either charm. It combines the courage to inquire and press forward in the face of mystery, but it does so with modesty and humility, not pretending to comprehend. Compared with the ultimate end, the beatific vision, sorry, compared with the ultimate end, what the, sorry, compared with the ultimate end, the beatific vision, what it achieves seems paltry. But elevated by the gift of faith and perfected by charity, it presses on in the conviction that the scantiest knowledge of the highest things is worth more than the most certain knowledge of lower things. That a partial glimpse of those whom we love is worth more than the clearest vision of other things, no matter how great or numerous they be. Thank you.